on what we call Trinity Sunday. This is the Sunday when preachers look at the, the and say, oh no, today, the impossible task. Now, it's the first Sunday of Pentecost, and I think the reason that is, I'm no expert on these things, but I think the reason that we call today Trinity Sunday is because last week we celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in power upon the disciples. And what happened is that people in the early church had to begin to start making sense of the reality that was unfolding before them. They knew that there was a father and creator God. They called him Yahweh. Uh, but then this Jesus Messiah fellow showed up on the scene and began to do and say God things. He healed people with the very power of God. And then he said things that only God has the authority to say, like, your sins are forgiven. And before Abraham was, I am. And then, not to mention that he also says things like this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Bold. Bold. But this Jesus ascends back into heaven, having promised that an advocate would come, a helper, a comforter, that is the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, at the Feast of Pentecost, which we celebrated last week, the disciples have a mysterious and powerful encounter with this spirit that enables them to speak in different languages to the different people who are in the land to talk to them about Jesus the Messiah. And they experience the spirit working through them in miraculous ways to heal people, almost as if Jesus himself was right there continuing his earthly ministry through them. He was. And the spirit also gave them the courage to speak about Jesus, even when it endangered their lives. Now, you may be surprised to hear this, but get ready for this. The Bible actually doesn't speak about the Trinity. <gasps> he's speaking heresy. And what I mean by that is that the Bible never talks to us about the Trinity. It never says the word Trinity or talks about to us about the Trinity in the way that our theology books do. You see, if you look up the word Trinity in your Bible index in the back, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's not going to be there because it doesn't appear in the Bible. It just doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Uh, but oh, that the Lord would make something like that appear so that the job of preachers on Trinity Sunday would be easier. But alas, he has not. But again, the Bible does speak clearly and openly about the reality of a creator God who is sovereign over his creation. And it also speaks about a son who is supernaturally born of a virgin and goes about doing and saying God things. And it speaks about a spirit, a holy one that comes from God, that seems to be the very presence and power of God himself. And so we have to make sense of this reality. And so we call it a trinity. It is three in one. It's no wonder that our friend Nicodemus had some trouble understanding Jesus. He comes to Jesus by night, perhaps because he's afraid of what his friends will think of him if he starts talking to this crazy Jesus guy, perhaps because that's just the time of day when Jesus is least busy with the crowds. But he comes to Jesus by night, and he acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher. 
He acknowledges he's a teacher who's come from God because, as he says, nobody can do the things that you are doing unless the hand of God is on them. And then Jesus says this very strange thing to Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus is confused. He's confused. He's trying to figure out rationally, right? He's thinking rationally how someone could be born for a second time. Be like, is there a way to crawl back into your mother's womb? This is weird. What is he talking about, right? He's confused. And then Jesus says something even more strange to Nicodemus. And he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is born of the spirit is spirit. You see, Jesus is describing a spiritual reality, a spiritual rebirth, literally. And the only other thing that Nicodemus, still confused, says in this conversation is, how can these things be? See, Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to come in closer, right? To really open his eyes to the reality of what stands right before him. But Nicodemus, you know, he believes in God. He's got his concept of God all figured out, right? He's even a teacher and a leader of the people of Israel. And yet, he's not experiencing the reality of God. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks to him. He says, you can know all kinds of things about God and believe in him and you can even teach about him and still not really know him, not walk in the very life of God. Now, this is similar um, to what happens to our friend Isaiah in our Old Testament passage today. It's actually similar. Isaiah, he's God's guy. He's a leader. He's a prophet. He's been sent to those sinful, rebellious people of Israel to give them a word from the Lord to turn them from their rebellious ways. Now, he's raised in the courts, in the royal courts. And so Isaiah, he probably thinks, you know, I'm in a pretty good place. I'm in a pretty good position. And God has ordained me to go and speak to these sinful people who don't know how to live before God. And so here's what God does. He gives Isaiah a vision in the temple of his glory. He gives him a vision of his glory. And Isaiah, so aware of the sinfulness of other people, when he finds himself standing in the very glory of God, all he can do is tremble and say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. See, like Nicodemus, Isaiah had yet to truly experience God. And only when he got a glimpse of God's glory did things change for him. Change for him. This is just want to read it again. This is the vision that he sees. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces, and two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This Hebrew word here, glory, that we read glory in the English, a Hebrew word, kabod, it means something like weight, weightiness. It's telling us that God is the ultimate reality. God's glory is the ultimate reality. He's the real 
versus the illusory. He's the substantial versus the unsubstantial. He's the majestic versus nothingness. He's the God who spoke into existence the 10 billion galaxies that are in the universe, the 1 billion trillion stars that are exploding with light and gas in the universe. That is glory. And he gives Isaiah a glimpse of his glory and it changes Isaiah forever. Now Isaiah is beginning to experience God as a reality, not just as a concept in his head. And he instantly becomes aware of this is what happens when you experience God. He begins to become instantly aware of his own unworthiness to stand in the presence of God's glory. See, there's a difference between believing in God, believing things about God and actually experiencing God as a reality. You see, believing has to do with concepts, right? We have concepts that help us believe. We have certain concepts about God and those concepts can be wrong. They are subject to being wrong. They can actually be a box that we try to put God into to keep our lives comfortable. Sometimes that's how our concepts of God operate. They work to keep God in a box so that we can avoid discomfort. You see, Isaiah had a concept of God, but he did not have the reality. Nicodemus had a concept of God, but he was not experiencing the fullness of the reality. You see, experience is different. Experience means that the glory, the weight of God has dropped into your life like a kind of earthquake. Think of it like this. If we move that baptismal font back there up here, you know, that's what we put water in for baptism. And I filled it up to the brim and I had a big brick and I dropped the brick into the font. What would happen? Kaboom. (laughs) Yes, the weight The weightiness of the brick would shake things up. The water would splash and get reordered and reorganized and go everywhere on the carpet. You see, when you experience God, that's kind of what happens. He drops his weight, his glory drops into your life and things begin to change. Things get moved around. Things get shaken, turned upside down. That's what happens when we actually experience God. See, if God is only a concept that we believe, That's not very weighty. It's not very weighty because we can fit him with our concepts into our preconceived beliefs and ideas. We can fit him into our way of life and conform him to it, right? But if God is a reality, sometimes, often I would say, he'll actually contradict our beliefs. Sometimes our deepest held beliefs. He'll contradict our way of life. He will contradict our preconceived notions about reality. In our lives will be changed. This is what we call transformation, right? When God comes into your life, you actually experience transformation in your beliefs, in your actions, your behavior, in your relationships. See, um, someone recently said, this is brilliant, they said, if your God always agrees with everything you do and believe, that's probably not God but an idol. Whew. <laughs> wow. You see, people say um, things like this. I couldn't believe, I don't believe the Bible because I couldn't believe in a God who would do this or a God who would do X, Y, or Z. So I don't really believe in the Bible because I couldn't believe in a God who would do something like that. But see, that's a God that you have molded into your own conceptual framework. That's a God who won't ever challenge you because you expect him to conform to your present view of life. When you experience God, you see, his word becomes alive to you. 
His word becomes the measure of what is right and wrong, true and false in your life. You, you, you say, what a glorious and holy God. And sometimes I don't understand his ways, but they're inscrutable. But his word is true. And it tells us that he's perfectly just and righteous and that he's perfectly loving and good. See, experiencing is so much more than just believing. Now, I know what you're asking yourself right now. What in the world does all of this have to do with the Trinity? What does this have to do with the Trinity? John's gospel tells us that, and we all know this verse so well, right? We went over this just a couple weeks ago. God so loved the world, that is, God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, the love of God for his lost creatures compelled him to take on human flesh so that we could experience him in the fullest sense and so that he could experience us in the fullest sense. You see, the God of the Bible is relational. He acts out of his desire to be in relationship with his creatures. You see, since God identified with human life, like fully identified with it, he became fully human He can offer us a way into his own eternal divine life. That's what eternal life is. Life that experiences God. Not eternal life isn't when I die, I get eternal life. Eternal life is something you step into in Jesus Christ in the here and now and you begin to experience the divine life of God flooding your body and your soul in the here and now and forevermore. (laughs) You do get that too. You see, Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to wake up to this reality, to move beyond his limited concepts about God and actually to experience God by being completely reborn into a new life by faith in the waters of baptism, right? He says no one can enter it but by water and the spirit. You see, this is an encounter, this Nicodemus encounter, this Isaiah encounter. It's something that all of us need and maybe some of us haven't had yet. And God invites us into it. It's an encounter with the living God who is at once our heavenly father, the son who makes it possible for us to be adopted into his family and the spirit that he sends so that we continue to experience his presence and his power in our everyday lives. He is three and he is one. See, without the father, nothing would exist. And without the son, nothing could be redeemed. And without the spirit, we would be stuck with nothing but concepts about God. Let's look at our Isaiah passage one more time. This is such a beautiful passage, rich with a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus. When Isaiah gets a glimpse of God's glory, he immediately becomes, uh, as we said, aware of his sinfulness, right? You know what this story reminds me of in the New Testament? Do you remember when Peter, one of the first encounters he has with Jesus, they're standing in the boat. He doesn't really understand who Jesus is yet. And Peter's fishing and they haven't been able to catch anything. And Jesus says, Peter, throw your nets in the other side. And Peter says, Jesus, (laughs) ah, new guy, Jesus, we've been fishing all day long. Master fisherman here, see, got the license. There's no fish right here today. And uh, Jesus said, Peter, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And Peter, probably rolling his eyes, says, okay. And they throw their net on the other side into the sea. And in a heartbeat, the net is full of fish, so full that it is overflowing and breaking. And what is Peter's response right 
then and there. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, like Isaiah, he realized he was standing in the presence of glory. John's gospel actually tells us in chapter 12 that about Jesus, that Isaiah saw his glory and wrote about him. You see, Jesus was eternally present there in that glory and that vision that Isaiah had. And before Isaiah can even plead for mercy, he recognizes his own sinfulness in the presence of God. And before he can even plead for mercy, God sends a messenger with a live coal to touch his lips. Remember, this is a vision, right? He's not burning him. There's this live coal and he touches his lips and it purifies him. And the messenger says, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. What a striking image of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we stand before God aware of our unworthiness to stand before his glory, the brokenness, aware of the brokenness inside of us at the deepest places, our hurt, our pain, our anger, our bitterness, all of our sin. And yet like a live coal to our lips, God sends his only son to die on a cross. And he says to us, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Brothers and sisters, we have been purified by that live coal. We have been healed. And every week, every week, the Holy Trinity invites us into his glorious presence right up here at this altar. And he he brings that sin-cleansing, fiery coal to our lips, except only now it's in the form of, of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for us in that chalice. And everything sinful is forgiven. And everything broken begins to heal. And all we can do is fall down and cry out, holy, holy, holy. Amen.